couple weeks ago, uh, we were in verses 12 through 19, which is the triumphal entry of, of Christ. And we're coming up on the uh, Palm Sunday and Easter here in a few weeks, so we are preparing our hearts for, for that. Um, chapter 12 begins the, the final week of Christ's life. Um, it's six days before Passover, the day in which Christ is going to be crucified. Um, chapter 12 begins with this anointing, Mary anoints Christ. And then the next day, on Sunday, Christ enters Jerusalem, um, and he's hailed by the crowd as the Messianic King. They wave palm branches, they're excited, they're celebrating. Um, it's very nationalistic fervor, they're expecting him to be the Messiah to overthrow the Romans. Um, and Jesus, coming in, met by the crowd, he accepts their accolades. He presents himself as he is indeed Messiah. But he does it in a way to clarify what kind of Messiah he's come to be. How does Jesus present himself? Do you remember? He comes in riding on a what? On a donkey. Now, why was that significant? Do you remember? All right, it fulfilled Zechariah 9.9. Good. What else? Royal symbol. It was a royal symbol. We said a donkey was a symbol of royalty, of kingship. Right? It's not really how we would think of a donkey. Saw another hand? You were going to say that? Okay. All right. It was a status of peace. So he did not come in on a war horse. We're told one day he will, in his second coming, return on a war horse. But in his first coming... He comes in the Zechariah 9 manner to come to receive a kingdom and to conquer and triumph, not through warfare, but in dependence on his father. And Zechariah 9 goes on to say that he's going to extend his kingdom and reign universally from sea to sea. So that's how he's presenting himself. And he's coming in to conquer and triumph by dying on a cross is what we're told. And the section concludes in verse 19 with the, the Pharisees. Look how they respond. Verse 19, they say the world has gone after him. They're, they're frustrated. They're discouraged. They can't um, control the excitement of the crowd. The world is present at Jerusalem. People from all over the Roman world have come for Passover, and they're flocking to Christ, and the Pharisees are, are quite, quite frustrated. And that prepares us now for this next scene, which we're going to be in this, this morning. Um, in verses 12 through, through 20, and uh, I've announced these two announcements which reveal Christ as the triumphant and glorified king of the world. The first announcement is going to come in what we're looking at this morning, verse 20 through 26. And the second announcement will come next week in verses 27 to 36. This morning, we'll hear Christ announce the arrival of his hour. And next week, we will hear him announce his devotion to his hour. But what is the hour of Christ? And what leads him to make this announcement here? And how does this connect to the triumphal entry that we just saw? So hopefully we will be able to answer those questions in just a minute. We'll look at verses 20 through 22. 
His announcement is in response to the request of Greeks. Look at verse 20. Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So no sooner do the Pharisees declare that the world has gone after Christ than John shows us some Greeks who have come looking for Jesus. Who are these Greeks? Well, they're most likely non-Jewish Gentiles who have come to this feast of, of Passover. Um, we don't know where they're from. They're from somewhere in the Greek-speaking world. The book of Acts records many such people. They're called God-fearers. Can you think of a few? The Ethiopian eunuch, right, comes up to Jerusalem. Um, Cornelius. So they would not have been converts to Judaism. They had not been circumcised, and yet they believed in the God of the Old Testament, and they came up to, to worship at these, at these feasts. Um, this is probably who these people are. But if we've been following John carefully up to this point then the significance of these Greeks should be pretty clear. What did we say Zechariah 9 promised that this king would do? He would extend his reign, where? Over the nations. It said he'll speak peace to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what we see here. We've been told repeatedly that Christ's mission as Messiah was not only to redeem Israel, but to gather the nations, the Gentiles, into his new covenant people. And that is what we get here. But how will he do that? That's what this passage is about. How will Christ be gathering and bringing these people in? But before we we answer that question, look at what these, these Greeks ask. Verse 21, they say, Ask Philip, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So they find out Philip, um, and they ask him this. I'm not sure why they, they select Philip. Um, Philip, this name, is a, is a Greek name, um, so it's possible that they uh, identify that. Um, he's from Bethsaida in Galilee. That was a Greek-speaking region. So perhaps Philip spoke Greek. Um, that's why they find him. So I'm not entirely sure, but it's a possibility. But they come to Philip, and they ask to see Jesus. Look there again. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They probably have heard all this talk going on about the sign Jesus has just performed, raising Lazarus from the dead. Um, And so they're eager to to see him. And when they're asking to see Jesus, they're not just wanting to look at him. They want to meet him. They're asking Philip to set up a meeting with him and Jesus. They want to get to know him. Well, Philip responds to this. He goes and finds Andrew. Perhaps Philip didn't know what to do with this request. What did he do with these non-Jewish people seeking Jesus? Finds Andrew, discusses it, and then they both go and seek Jesus out and inform him. And Christ responds to this request now by making a very significant statement. It is the request of these Greeks which trigger what Christ is about to say. But why does it lead to what Christ says next? 
is because Christ has indeed come to be seen by Greeks and by Jews and by Americans and by Chinese and every Gentile and person in the world. He has come to gather the nations into his messianic flock, but that will only happen through his cross. That will only happen as people see Christ in his cross work, not in any other way. That's why their request triggers his response. He will declare what he does to these Greeks as if to say that the coming of the Greeks is a foretaste of what will take place in Christ's cross and as the nations behold his glory there. So look at his announcement now in verse 23. His announcement is that his hour of glorification has arrived. Verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If we've been tracking with John up to this point, then these words ought to land on us with a loud thud. The first time, the last time, Jesus spoke of his hour was back in chapter 2, verse 4, the very beginning of his ministry. Remember the wedding of Cana? He said, my hour has not yet come. And then he goes on to perform this sign, which was to illustrate what would accomplish in his hour. Remember the sign? Changed water into wine. And so... That was the very beginning of Christ's ministry, and he doesn't mention his hour again until now the the close of his earthly ministry. It bookends his his ministry. John mentions Christ's hour two other times in the gospel. In chapter 7 and in chapter 8, in both times, he says that the Pharisees were unable to arrest Christ. They were unable to put Christ to death because his hour had not yet come. In other words, the hour of Christ was the thing for which Christ aimed from the beginning of his ministry, and it would also be a decisive moment when he would be arrested in which he would be put to death. And we're held in suspense through the rest of this gospel as we're told that it's not come, it's not come. But now, in response to these Greeks, Jesus says that this hour which has been anticipated from the very beginning, has now arrived. Look at how he describes it. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Through this hour, Christ will be glorified. So in some sense, this hour will involve his arrest and his murder. And in another sense, it will involve his glorification. But how do these come together? How does that that work? Drop your eyes down to verse 32. I think we get a clue. How is it that his murder and arrest will be his glory? Verse 32, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Both these words glorified and lifted up have the idea of exaltation and honor. What's in Isaiah 52, 13? This is right before Isaiah 53. Is how it begins. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be lifted up. It's the very same word. 
and he shall be exalted or glorified. The very same word that we get in these two verses in John. But in verse 32 of John, it's not talking about his exaltation per se, but the way he's going to die. Look at verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He's going to be lifted up on a cross. So in other words, John intentionally uses this word lifted up to teach us that Christ's very lifting up on the cross will be his lifting up in exaltation. That is to say, Christ's glorification and exaltation come not only despite the fact that he's crucified, they come not only after he's crucified, they come in the very moment, in the very act of his crucifixion. He is glorified. But how does that work? How is it that the moment of Christ's greatest humiliation, his greatest defeat, and suffering and shame would be the moment of his greatest glory. What do you think? How does that work? How is Christ glorified in his cross? Why does he say the hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified as he's lifted up on a cross? He accomplishes the work the Father intended to do. Good, excellent. He accomplishes the work the Father gave him. What else? Victorious over death. Good. Five thoughts. <clears throat> Let me give you four. Here. I don't know if I put these in your outline or not. Number one, it's because as Christ is lifted up, he is glorified as the obedient son of the Father. The, Christ was the, the, the cross was the moment of Christ's greatest honor as it revealed his love and devotion for the Father, will go even to this extent. That's how he's glorified in his cross. Number two, it is because in the cross Christ conquered and triumphed as Messiah in his work of saving and redeeming all the people God has given to him. Remember, he comes and conquers and triumphs by dying as he secures Redemption. Number three, it's because the visible splendor and character of the heart of God is put on full display as the Son of God hung on the cross to accomplish redemption for the world. Remember all the way back in chapter one, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of what? Full of grace and truth. Those words harken back to Exodus, where God revealed he's the Lord full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And in the cross, Christ reveals the steadfast love and faithfulness of God more clearly and more brilliantly than it had ever been seen before. Number four, it's because through the cross, Jesus returns to the glory and splendor which he enjoyed with the Father before the world. That is why he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He'll be glorified in his cross. And he said this in response to Greeks. In other words, he does not give them what they immediately requested. We're never told that he actually meets with them. 
where they see him. They wanted to see Jesus, but Jesus responds by saying that his hour of glorification has arrived. In other words, Jesus wants to be seen as this. He's come to be seen by Greeks, but he must be seen as the Messiah glorified in crucifixion. And with the request of these Greeks, Jesus declares that his glory will be revealed and the nations will be gathered D.A. Carson put it like this, even if they met with Jesus at this point, there is a sense in which they could not yet see him. They could not, not yet belong to him until the hour is over and Jesus has been lifted up from the earth. That's not all. His hour is certainly unique. And his hour will be the moment of his greatest glory and when it is seen by Jews and Gentiles, it will gather them into his covenant people. In other words, Christ's disciples are those who have seen his glory, who've seen him as this. That's what a believer is. That's what a disciple is. And all who have seen him as this follow in his footsteps and that's where Christ takes us next Jesus is going to do this again in chapter 13 where he illustrates his work when he washes the disciples feet you know he gets down we're going to be there soon and he illustrates what he's going to do on the cross by washing their their feet but immediately after he illustrates this unique work that he does for them he immediately tells them what you go and do likewise they are to imitate the unique work that he's performed for them. That's what we find here in this passage. All who have seen him in his glory must also imitate him on this road of suffering and glory. That is what we find next in verse 24 through 26. His hour of glorification is an imperative model for his disciples. And he begins by giving an illustration of this. Verse 24, Christ's death is essential to produce life. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He gives us this parable, a principle we're all familiar with. Springtime is coming, and uh, a lot of us like to plant gardens. I used to before we moved into a house that's infested with deer. Um, but, uh, we know this principle, right? Seeds, wheat, um, a kernel of wheat, a seed, um, it does nothing. It doesn't produce fruit so long as it sits in a bag or lays on a table. It's just a, it's just a seed. The only exception is if it is planted into the ground, a picture of death. And then and only then does it spring up with new life and multiplication to a great crop. You know that principle. And that's the picture Jesus gives of what he's about to accomplish. He will be glorified as he dies like a seed planted into the ground 
And this will be his glory because it will lead to life of many souls. Death is necessary for life. That's the principle. But while that uniquely applies to Christ's work, his substitutionary death on the cross, it also applies to every single one of you and me. Every one of his disciples. And this is the implication of true discipleship. True discipleship imitates Christ in death and glory. Just as Jesus' death came by means of very much fruit through his self-sacrifice in submission to the Father, so too true disciples must walk this same path, for it is the path to eternal life. Look at verse 25. Disciples preserve their lives by not loving their lives even to death. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Just as Jesus' death resulted in the life of many, so the death of disciples is necessary for their own life. Not in the sense that it adds to Christ's work or completes Christ's work, but in the sense of perseverance. And we've seen perseverance all through the Gospel of John. Eternal life, true life with God, is a present possession. You are already experiencing it. But the full experience of eternal life is still coming for believers. And that is what we strive for. Notice what it says. These people guard, they keep, they protect their life for eternal life. In other words, those who have been brought to experience of eternal life now, in this life, live in such a way to guard their souls for eternal life then. Or put it another way. True disciples not only experience eternal life now as they behold the glory of Christ. That's how you become a disciple, right? But they also live for the full experience of eternal life, which is coming. Which is beholding Christ in heaven. And the way they live for that is by dying, by suffering, and which results in glory, just like Christ But what does this look like? What Jesus tells us, look what it says. He says, the one who loves his life destroys it, literally. The way to destroy your life, your soul, is by loving it. The second line clarifies this one. He says, you hate your life in this world. So I think you can read it there. Whoever loves his life in this world destroys it. That is, the focus and the love of your life is preserving it in this fallen and rebellious world. To love one's life in this world is to preserve it in this world at any cost. Now, this is not talking about your enjoyment of the blessings of God that he's given to you. doesn't mean we don't love things about this life, my family, my children, good food. We do. You should. It's not talking about 
having a natural aversion for death, not wanting to physically die. All of those things are normal and natural. Jesus is talking about a love of one's own life in this world such that he clings to it to preserve it at any cost. It reveals a deep preference of the heart for this fallen world over and above Christ, which is the height of idolatry. The way to destroy your life is to preserve your life in this fallen world at the expense of trust and obedience and faithfulness to Christ. That's how you can destroy your life, my friends. But to make it clear, Jesus gives us the flip side. He says the one who hates his life in this world guards it to eternal life. It's very similar to what he says in Luke 14. Remember, unless you hate father and mother and wife and children, even your own life, you cannot be my disciples. The meaning of hatred is not hostility. It just means a fundamental preference. A fundamental preference. A true disciple hates his life in this world in the sense that he has a fundamental preference for something else over the preservation of his life in this world. His life's goal is not to squeeze as much pleasure out of this life as he can possibly get for as long as he can get. His life's goal is that he would obtain eternal life with the Father and the Son in glory. That's what drives a true disciple's life. So how does this work out practically? I think in two realms. Let me give you both of those quickly. The first is in the realm of obedience to Christ and fruitfulness. In the realm of obedience and fruitfulness. Just as Jesus died in perfect obedience to the Father and so produced much fruit, so true disciples must have a fundamental preference for obedience to Jesus, even to the extent of losing one's life in this world our mandatory model. We preserve our lives and endure to eternal life as we abide in his words, as we continue persevering trust and obedience. Our obedience doesn't earn us eternal life, but it is the necessary evidence that we trust him and we know him that we've actually seen his glory, right? If you've seen his glory, that is what's going to be dominating your life and bringing you all the way to the end. So test yourself on on this this point. Well, the ultimate expression of this obviously would be martyrdom. I don't think many of us have been faced with that dilemma this week or probably won't um, in the near future. Maybe coming soon, we don't know. But we're often tested on much smaller levels. Does your obedience to Christ have a limit? Do you obey him only insofar as it doesn't threaten the enjoyment of your life in this world? Do you sacrifice for him and his people only when it won't cost you too much? It's not what Christ did, and it's not what true disciples do either. When was the last time 
that obedience to Christ cost you something. Maybe it's the pain of self-denial. Maybe it was the loss of some possession. Remember how this chapter starts. Mary pours ointment that cost a year's wage. $30,000, $40,000 equivalents, fifty. dollars on Christ, lavish devotion. Maybe it's the loss of your time or convenience or reputation. True disciples love Christ and obedience to him more than maintaining their life in this world. Christ is not only the source of their salvation, he's the model of suffering to glory. Number two, the other realm I think this works out is in the realm of testimony. So obedience and testimony, confession of Christ and witness of Christ costing even their own lives. Hold your hand here. Go over to Revelation chapter chapter 12. <clears throat> Revelation 12. <clears throat> Verse 11. <clears throat> it's talking about believers before the throne room of God. Verse 11 says, They have conquered him. That's the, the devil, the dragon, and the beast. They've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Well, why? For they loved not their lives even unto death. What's very interesting is that chapter 13, these people are conquered by the beast. See that? Chapter 13, verse 7. Came to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So you may be conquered by the beast and put to death. But believers conquer the beast how? By not loving their life to the point of death. By the blood of the Lamb and by maintaining their confidence and confession of Christ to the end. Christ conquered and triumphed by dying and believers conquer and triumph by not loving their lives to death. So do you confess Christ? Is that more valuable to you than your life? If you love your life, you destroy it. If you hate your life in this world because you're so constrained by the love of the glory of Christ that you keep it for eternal life. So that's the first implication for disciples that comes from Christ's model. Just as Christ triumphed through not loving his life to death, so also we disciples. And again, ultimately it's expressed in martyrdom, but it's expressed every day, every decision, every moment that we live, we live like this. Superior <laughs> preference for Christ than this, than this world. Number two, second implication that comes from this is in verse 26. Disciples pattern their lives of service to Christ after Christ's service to the Father. Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. 
If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What's the key word in this verse? You see it? Word serve or servant. Each one of these statements Christ makes has this word serve or servant. To be a disciple is to be a servant of Christ. This is the word diakonos, where we get deacon from. A table waiter. A lowly servant. That's how you relate to Christ. But Jesus wants to tell you what it looks like. How do you serve Christ? You cannot serve Christ any way you want. You must do it the way Christ tells you to do it. And then he gives you promises to motivate you. So let's look at these very quickly. Number one, true discipleship requires following Christ on the Calvary Road. 26, he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where is Jesus going? Where are you following him to? Where is he heading to right now? He's heading to the cross. You must follow me. If you wish to be his disciple, you must follow him, imitate him on the way to the cross. It's the pinnacle of self-denial, of submission to God. It's what we saw the last, the last point. It's a lifetime of self-denying service to Christ. There's a road of suffering and shame, but it leads to glory, just like Christ and just like a disciple. Number two, so that's the pathway. Jesus gives us two encouragements, two motivations to stay on this path. True discipleship leads to the glorified presence of Christ. He says, where I am, there my servant will be also. So where is Christ? He says, where I am. Well, we've seen this several times already. He told the Pharisees, where I am going, you cannot come. He's going to the Father, right? You can't come. You're an unbeliever. You will not go to heaven, he tells them. He's going to the Father. But now Jesus uses this exact same phrase for the disciples who follow him on the Calvary Road. They, too, will be where he is, namely in the glory of the Father. That's motivation to stay on the road. Look over at chapter 17. Really quickly. Chapter 17, verse 24. It's a road of suffering, self-denying, cutting against your flesh that doesn't want obedience, that wants to cling to this life. It's worth it. Suffering and shame, it ends in glory just as it did with Christ. And this is the glory you have to look forward to, brothers and sisters. Verse 24, Father, is Jesus' prayer. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Same phrase. To see my glory. That you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. True discipleship leads to the glorified presence of Christ. That's what we'll be doing for eternity. That is the gift of heaven see him in all of his glory. You see him now, and then you're motivated to live to this end. Number three, second motivation, true discipleship is rewarded with the favor of the Father. Go back to chapter 12, verse 26. If anyone serves me, 
the Father will honor him. Notice the close connection between Christ and the Father. We've already seen if you reject Christ, you reject the Father. They're inseparable. In the same way, those who serve Christ as his faithful disciples will not just be honored by Christ. You will be honored and loved by God the Father. Is that astonishing? Because of your love and following Christ's model. Christ entered the glory and honor of his Father through the cross, and so too believers will enter the honor of the Father through the pathway of the cross. Those are two massive encouragements to keep us on this, on this pathway. Is your life devoted to fruitfulness? We want to be fruitful. Do you want to be fruitful? You have to die. You have to walk the road of the cross. Um, it is the life of disciples. It's hard. It involves suffering. It involves self-denial, but it leads to glory. Christ our Savior... And glorified Lord is glorified in his crucifixion. And by beholding him, we have life. That's the first half of this passage. You become part of his people by beholding his glory. He gathers in his people by revealing his glory. And you see it and respond by faith to it. And all who have seen him in that glory of his follow him. In a life which imitates his love for the Father, his love for obedience, and his love for bearing fruit more than life. True disciples not only behold the glory of Christ, they follow him through the cross to eternal glory. So it will cost you your life, and you will conquer and enter eternal life, the very presence of Christ in his glory, as you follow him and trust him. Any questions, comments on this passage? Thoughts? You're saved by the blood of the Lamb. You're saved by the word of your testimony, persevering. You're saved by Christ's unique sacrifice. You're saved by your persevering confession of Him. So this is what I want ringing in your ears as you go as you go out. Well, how can we summarize everything we've saw, seen this morning into one statement? The glory of Christ in the cross is the object of saving faith. That's how you became a believer. You saw him in his glory. And it's the model. The glory of Christ in the cross is the model for all of his disciples. So look to Christ. Keep beholding his glory. And be longing for the day that you will be with him in the full display of his glory. Let that drive you to follow him, imitate him, as you do hard things, as you forgive sin of one another, as you be patient with one another, as you deny your flesh in submission to Christ, as you seek to serve the body and pour yourself out. His glory is coming, and you will be rewarded and honored by the Father. Let me pray. Father, we love you. Thank you. Praise you. Thank you for Christ. Oh, that we would see his glory more clearly. Lord, that we would not be filled with so much of the junk of this world that would make us cling to this life. But more clearly taste and see that Christ is good. Love him. 
Lord, in response to that, we would follow him on the Calvary Road every day in the little things. Because he's our Lord and it is the pathway to glory and that's what we want, is to be with him where he is. So help us, Lord. Help us today to find practical ways to, to live this out in our lives. We love you. Thank you. I ask that you bless my brothers and sisters this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.